and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about African infrastructure, and while this is a very important topic for the continent, in part because Africa, by most estimates, needs at least a trillion dollars of infrastructure over the next 10 years. And the key question is, where is that money and where are the contractors going to come from? Well, one place we know where it's coming from is China. And China is the source of not only the direct infrastructure projects that China negotiates with countries, uh, but also at the same time, it also engages in a lot of World Bank projects. But Cobus, really one of the controversial parts of this is the perception of that Made in China logo. And when I say to you Made in China, what do you think, Cobus? Made in China usually in, in Africa means scrappy. Um, and this is this is a, a perception that's very strong. It's a perception that I test. Every, you know, every course I teach about China Africa in uh, the, at the University of Advertisement, where to, to a person, the students, you know, kind of say that that is their perception of of what Chinese products are and what Chinese infrastructure is. And so it's very. It would be very interesting to get real data about how Chinese infrastructure actually stands up to competitors. Well, let's get some of that information, and we're thrilled to be joined by Jamie Farrell, who's a master's candidate at the Johns Hopkins University and works right alongside with uh, Deborah Braudigam at the China Africa Research Initiative. She's taking classes there, soon to graduate, and she wrote a fascinating paper, How Do Chinese Contractors Perform in Africa? Evidence from World Bank Projects. So I suspect we're going to be getting some data. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Well, we are very happy to have you because, in part, one of the themes of the the past, I'd say, year of shows that we have done is this perception versus reality gap. So there's a perception that Deborah, in fact, she wrote about in her book, Will uh, you know Africa Feed China? Uh, there's perception that Af- that China is doing massive land grabs. The reality, of course, is not that. We talked to some agricultural specialists who talked about how the Chinese. There's a perception that the Chinese are kind of abusing African agriculture. They are kind of growing crops for their own export, but at the same time, really kind of abusing the land. Turns out that's not the case. So, perception versus reality when it comes to contractors performing in Africa especially on World Bank projects, what is your thesis? Great. Um, So actually, let me start off with a little bit of context for this. Um, Like you're saying, there is this overwhelming perception that Chinese work is of lesser quality when you're looking at infrastructure that's done in Africa. Um, We've seen quite a few, you know, top-notch media sources that are posting articles um, on certain projects that have been of low quality. Forbes, BBC, The Economist have all spotlighted certain projects that went badly. Um, There's a few very high-profile projects that were also receiving a lot of negative attention. Um, There's a road in Zambia where it was partially washed away and um, a hospital in Angola that had structural issues about four years after being constructed. And um, on top of this, most of the academic work that we have at this point is really focusing on um, one or two case studies, and it's going in-depth into those projects. Um, And oftentimes those are centered on, you know, projects that have gone poorly. Then at the same time, we're seeing that Chinese firms are slowly winning a larger and larger percentage of World Bank uh, contracts to do infrastructure in Africa. 
Um, from 20, 2007 to 2015, uh, Chinese firms won 30% of all infrastructure project contracts in Africa through the World Bank, and that's up from only 18% from 2000 to 2006. And at this point, China has the highest percentage, um, the highest win percentage for any any country globally for uh, World Bank contracts. Um, so they really have quite a bit of work, and that's kind of where we are left with this kind of gap of opportunity to see, well, you know, overall, how are Chinese firms performing? And are these, you know, few high profile cases that we're seeing that have been so negative? Is that really representative of the work that's being done overall? Um, or, you know, is that kind of the outlier? And so what this paper tried to do was, um, I looked through the data set that we have through the World Bank. Um, they, they create an implementation, completion and results report after um, each project is completed. And so I looked through these reports and created a, a rating system and was able to go through and match certain contractors uh, to work that was being done and described in these reports. And most of that matching happened based on descriptions that are provided in the contract awards database for the World Bank. And so overall, after going through, I scored um, 108 contracts, um, both Chinese firms and OECD firms were in that mix. And then, you know, overall, the, the main finding of this was that there was no statistically significant difference between the scores that the OECD firms received and the scores that the Chinese firms received. This is so interesting. Um, you know, kind of, uh, did, did you see any any major, kind of any areas of major difference between the two? Or were they generally the same across across the board, across all different kinds of categories? Yeah, there there were definitely some differences, and I think that's where you know the main point of the paper was to see what those you know average scores was. But there were quite a few insights that I came across as I was going through all of of this data, and so the first one is that um, the scores of Chinese firms were much more volatile than the scores of OECD country firms. Um, the Chinese firms had certain projects that were very very good, you know, scoring the highest possible rating of highly satisfactory, and then we also had um, you know, more really bad projects that just went terribly and got, you know, the worst possible score. Whereas the OECD firms were much more centered around, you know, the uh, satisfactory to moderately satisfactory side. Um, you know, both scores averaged out in that range between moderately satisfactory and satisfactory. Um, but there was um, a difference in the standard deviation of the two scores. So Chinese firms 0.83, whereas the OECD country firms had a standard deviation of 0.67. What does that, I'm um, sorry, what does that actually mean in plain English? So basically, um, the, the OECD firms generally were more consistent. They performed, you know, pretty much satisfactory or maybe moderately satisfactory. Um, whereas the Chinese firms generally also performed that way, but they had more outliers. So the Chinese firms, there were some projects that did very well and some that did very poorly, where on the OECD side, we didn't see as much variation in those scores. We didn't see the very negative cases or the extremely positive cases either. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I will also mention it, it could be, you know, there's, I was taking a sample of the OECD country. So, you know, there's also a possibility that um, there's some uh, you know, statistical error going on in terms of the sample size. But overall, based on the data I was using, um, yeah, the, the Chinese firms just had more, they had a few projects that went very poorly. And that's, um, you know, brings a lot of insight into maybe what could be driving this negative perception. Um, you know, people don't really talk about projects that went, 
you know, just a, just below satisfactory. But people do really like to talk about projects that went horribly wrong. Yeah, in Cobus, you know, things when they go wrong for the Chinese in Africa very much fit into the negative narrative that the Western media very much likes to pick up on. And not only just the Western media, it should be pointed out, but also within African domestic politics as well. You know, there's partisan politics, you know, that, that it kind of gets fed into. What, how much do you think that plays a role, Cobus, in feeding uh, this perception of, again, the negative narrative? It plays a huge part, I think, because, uh, you know, one, one of the problems with these kind of narratives is, is that it tends to, any kind of mistake, if, if you have a negative narrative um, already running, then any kind of some, um, isolated mistake tends to be overread as confirming the, the entire narrative, rather than being what it is as a kind of outlier. Um, whereas any positive um, incident um, tends to get discounted, you know, kind of because because it's it's in, uh, it, it is actually seen that is actually seen as an outlier, whereas it could actually in reality be just a standard. And, and, um, and you know, so and, and I'm sorry, contrary to how the West would respond, there is usually never a response from the Chinese when when there's something goes wrong. So if there was a contract, say, by done by an American or I think by the French, for example, that didn't live up to the expectations or kind of was an outlier on Jamie's kind of chart there, I think you would see either the contractor or the government itself kind of respond and challenge that narrative, say, well, it was because of this and it was because of that and it was because of this. And the Chinese never do that. So there's this kind of information void that exists there. I think the other the other side of that same coin is that all of the, the that the, the the positive outcomes are talked up, um, but they are only talked up by Chinese propaganda machinery. You know, kind of so it's, it's the Chinese state media regularly they pump out this kind of a steady feed of of like you know kind of grateful Ghanaians you know applaud new school that kind of that kind of um, media, and because it all happens in this in this propagandistic um, mode. It gets discounted, and no one then believes it or even listens to it. Jamie, there's a certain amount of irony uh, in, in reading your report because – and this is the way I understand it. And you may actually know different information, but it was explained to me by a friend of mine who was a very senior executive at General Electric in the Persian Gulf who did a lot of uh, African World Bank contracts in earlier in, you know, decades ago uh, in North Africa. And he explained to me that – both the World Bank and the IMF were pushed by Western governments to open their procurement system and their, their bidding system in order to kind of show that there was no corruption and that there was transparency. And the irony is, is that as soon as they made open bidding process, the Chinese came in and basically underbid everybody. And they underbid everybody. They find what the lowest bid is, and they basically cut 10% off of that. And a lot of it's backed with state money through state-owned enterprises. So they can kind of subsidize these bids in order to win the contracts. And since then, the Chinese, as you've pointed out, have won, you know, what, in 2014 alone, they did $53 billion in World Bank contracts. One out of three of the deals, about 30% of World Bank infrastructure, is produced by the Chinese. And so the irony that the OECD countries now are on the sidelines while the Chinese are gobbling up a lot of these contracts is because of their own initiative to open up the, the process in the beginning. Have you heard of that? Is that somewhere something accurate at all? Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the whole World Bank procurement process is um, 
you know, it really, it's, it's kind of complex and there are a lot of these issues. Um, one thing that I think came up in this paper is that um, oftentimes there'll be experience requirements um, in order to be able to bid. And that will knock out some of the local African firms from being able to bid on these projects. Um, so oftentimes, you know, you are seeing more Chinese firms being able to win those contracts. Um, there, there was one contract that I looked at specifically that was quite interesting. They had purposely, oftentimes the World Bank will target a certain country or try and, um, like, it will be a specific goal of the project to try and get more local country contracting participation. Um, and so in one project, they actually lowered the experience standards in order to allow a few local African firms to apply. And in that case, um, it, it did not work out well for them. They were not pleased with the outcome. Um, so there's kind of this really difficult um, you know, problem that they have to face in terms of, well, is it better to lower the expectations and allow local firms to start getting that experience and, and really allow them to get out of this kind of vicious cycle where if you're not experienced, you can't get work and therefore you won't become experienced. Um, so is it better to do that and start allowing, you know, local firms to join or is it better to have a very highly competitive, um, you know, work process? And on top of that, um, there is a whole sanction process, which actually I think we'll get into a little bit later. Um, it, it came up quite a bit in this paper. Um, but um, before getting to that, um, there, there is kind of the sanction process can be very difficult because oftentimes, um, you know, when I was talking to World Bank staff members, they were telling me it's very, you know, um, one one side versus the other, and there's very little evidence to prove who's really at fault. Um, so oftentimes, you know, the the local country will say, well, the contractor was late in mobilizing, um, and that caused us excess you know, that, that made us pay more money for it because we had to be in the construction process longer. Where on the other side of that, um, you know, the contractor will say, well, the country wasn't giving us access to the work site, so we weren't able to get in there and start working. Um, and so, you know, it's it's very contentious and it's hard to really tell who's at fault oftentimes when these, you know, problems come up. Jamie, um, I'd like to ask you about two, two quite contentious um, issues around these contracts and Chinese companies in Africa. Um, Chinese companies have gotten very bad press about their environmental record on, on big projects and also on um, hiring, uh, importing Chinese Chinese labor versus hiring locals. What did you find uh, over, uh, around those two issues in, in your research? Yeah, those were two issues. Um, I wasn't fully focused on those issues, although they did come into play. Um, for the rating system, if I saw anything regarding those two issues, um, you know, any social or environmental problems, I would um, adjust the, the scoring by around a half a point. Um, however, one thing I did notice, and I, I too expected this to be, you know, from how often you hear about it, um, you would think that it would come up in World Bank reports more often. Um, in reality, for the Chinese firms, there were two cases, two contracts out of 72 um, where anything was said about social and environmental issues being a big problem with the Chinese firms. Um, and this was both for the same project and um, both firms, it, it was one of the worst scoring contracts. Um, and both firms were, you know, uh, they went into detail, The whoever was writing the report went into a lot of detail about um, the, it was a highway in Ethiopia, and they went into great detail about um, inexperienced staff, repetitive changes in management, um, lack of English experience, social issues, and then there was also a problem with environmental issues, because I, I think it was that the, 
the original um, process that normally must be followed to ensure that you're not causing environmental damage had been skipped. And so after the construction had started, they already, they realized that their baseline data was not there. And that caused them quite a bit of trouble to have to go back and do the monitoring on the environmental side. Um, that being said, though, I, I was surprised, I suppose, because of the you know perception that it really only came up on, in two out of 72 contracts. Now, that could also be, you know, uh, just because of how the World Bank reports are written and, you know, the different competing interests um, going behind writing those. Perhaps it's not in the best interest of the World Bank to be, you know, shedding light on those issues in their own projects. You know, the Chinese are building uh, infrastructure all over the world. In fact, they're as active in South America and here in South Asia. Uh, here in Vietnam, they're building the subway system in Hanoi. Uh, they're building freeways and highways and, and all sorts of infrastructure throughout Southeast Asia. And we can expect more of that with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is the new $50 billion uh, well infrastructure bank that the Chinese are going to use to fund uh, infrastructure, not only here in Asia, but also in Africa. And I guess my question is, is that the Chinese have an enormous amount of experience working in these emerging markets, particularly in very difficult situations like places like the DR Congo, uh, even South Sudan. I mean, these are some of the most difficult places to build infrastructure. So when the bidding goes forward for a World Bank project, how competitive are the bids in terms of com- companies and maybe even countries that can compete to actually do the work? You know, I can't say overall how competitive. I think each one is quite different. Um, For sure, the ones in DRC are less competitive because there's less firms willing to work, um, you know, in those kinds of areas that are very hard to access. And um, and especially in post-conflict areas, those are difficult areas to be working in. Um, One thing I did notice is that Chinese firms had quite a few projects in these kind of high risk, uh, post-conflict, difficult access areas. Um, there was actually one contract that was done in the DRC where it, it really appeared that the Chinese firm um, was more willing to go work there than any other firm. And the person who wrote up that completion report had mentioned in the report that they were very happy that you know they actually had a firm that was willing to go there and do the work in that region. Um, it's a it's a really interesting question, and I think it's something that certainly could be researched further after um, you know looking at this report. Um, but I, I do wonder if you know the it seems that the Chinese firms had quite a few projects in these areas, and I would wonder if you know overall these um, Chinese state-owned enterprises are working in more difficult environments, perhaps than the OECD firms are willing to go to. What do we know about the about the different Chinese companies that 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 get the the bulk of these projects? You mentioned in, in the report that it's actually surprising the small number of of companies that that get a, a whole lot of the projects. Um, uh, how how what do we know about them and like what kind of companies are they? Yeah, and you know this was one of the most surprising things to me um, as I was going through these contracts. The Chinese firms, as you're saying, are. They, you know, there's a few big firms that are winning a large, large majority of these contracts. So actually, 75% of all the contracts um, for infrastructure in Africa um, through this time period that I was studying, so that was 2000, 2007, um, those were won by only seven firms. Um, those firms are generally state-owned enterprises. Um, they're very large. And... Um, in reality, they can be a bit elusive. Um, one of the contacts I had at the World Bank was discussing how oftentimes, you know, a state-owned enterprise will have many different uh, different groups doing projects. And so you might have one very experienced group that does a great job, and you may have one group that's, 
not quite as experienced um, and might be new. And they're both operating under the same company name. So it does make it very difficult to really understand and know the reputation of a company when there's actually many little different companies all operating under the same name. So let's get the bottom line here. So based on your research, from what it seems like, is that the perception that the Chinese produce lower quality infrastructure than other countries is not accurate. Is that correct, based on what you found from your World Bank research? Yeah, based on the data, there was no difference overall in in the scores of, on average, how Chinese firms versus OECD firms do. And do you have any kind of theories as to why the headlines are always so persistently negative? Um, Yeah, I do. So, you know, on the one hand, which we already discussed, um, the greater volatility of the scores, there are a few really bad cases that came up in this data set. Um, I'll also add that what I was looking at has been called the first wave of, you know, Chinese participation in infrastructure in Africa. And so it may be that the, the contracts that I was looking at are a bit older and may actually be a time when Chinese firms were a bit less experienced. Um, that being said, there's also a second reason, and it goes back to what we were discussing about um, only seven firms uh, having won a large majority of these contracts. Um, on top of that, four out of those seven firms had been sanctioned by the World Bank at some point after having completed the, the contracting work in Africa. Um, and so those were for various reasons. Um, one was procurement. Um, they were, you know, saying that they had more experience than they did in a contract for in Ghana. Um, two of the companies were sanctioned for misconduct in the Philippines for a road project. Um, and another one just had general misconduct in Southeast Asia. Um, and I think that's also a really big contributing factor to why there's this negative perception. And, you know, oftentimes that negative perception is um, does include corruption of sorts. Um, and so when you have four of the largest seven companies that have been in some way sanctioned by the World Bank, it certainly raises question marks and um, certainly raises doubt for people that are, you know, on the ground in Africa, seeing these companies that have been sanctioned in other places, um, you know, wondering about the quality of work that they're getting. So I think that that could certainly be a big driving factor behind the perception. You know, Cobus, listening to this, it... You know, it's very confusing because on the one hand, you, you get the frustration with the Chinese because of the corruption, because of sometimes the shoddy work, the inconsistent work that does come through and the way that they communicate and the way that they don't communicate. And it's definitely reason for, for frustration. But at the other end of that spectrum is that the Chinese are doing incredible work building infrastructure, uh, desperately needed infrastructure. They're producing at costs that pretty much no one else can meet on the scale that they're doing it on. And we've talked about in terms of the physical infrastructure, which is the roads, the bridges, the hospitals, the airports, the ministry buildings, all of those things are are very important. But then there's the kind of invisible infrastructure of data networks, you know, what Huawei is building and the information uh, exchanges that they've been able to do. Um, you, you know, and, and so you have these kind of conflicting emotions that kind of come into play. But at the end of the day, I think it's a net positive because of the fact is I don't believe that the Americans, the French, or most of the OECD countries would be able to come in there. And, you know, the Chinese will point out that a senior engineer for any of these seven companies will live almost like a peasant when he's on location, whereas the French or the Americans will put themselves up in four- and five-star hotels, and that forces the costs up. And the ability for these, you know, state-owned enterprises to be able to do work in places that are so remote and so isolated Again, in my experience being in the DRC, but we've talked about some other regions, 
um, that's admirable. And I think there's something to be said for that. So, you know, I leave this conversation just feeling both excited and at the same time frustrated. What are you, what, how do you leave the conversation? It strikes me that this is, again, so much to do with mediation. Um, you know, it's so much to do with how, how the presence in, of Chinese firms um, in Africa, how, how that story is told by the media. Um, and I think, you know, I happen to, I, I'm, I'm, of course, a media person, um, but, you know, you really do get a, a strong impression that so much of how we think of these of this kind of engagement is so dependent on how that story is told um and how the story is told ends up kind of becoming reality um you know and and that that i think is is worrying in a lot of ways you know because it can be very unfair the paper is called how do chinese contractors perform in africa evidence from world bank projects as you're hearing from jamie fuller uh, it's as full of information and fascinating insights as she is. And so, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And the paper is available at the Sice Carey website. That's the School of Advanced International Studies uh, at Johns Hopkins University. So if you want to find it, head over to uh, That's the China-Africa Research Initiative. You may have heard that because that's Professor Deborah Braudigan, the well-known China-Africa scholar. That's her uh, project that she's got over there. And she's got master's candidates like Jamie. And we're going to have a few others on the program as well coming up to profile their working papers and their research that they're doing, much like what we've heard here today with Jamie on Chinese contractors in Africa. For Copas Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The show may be over, but the conversation isn't. Eric and Kobus are continuing the discussion over on Facebook. Head to facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where they're updating the news feed every four hours. Also, africachina.info is where the guys answer some of the toughest, most sensitive, even politically incorrect questions on all things related to the Chinese in Africa. That's africachina.info. And if you've got a China-Africa question that you've always wanted to know more about, just hit up Eric and Kobus by email. The address is questions at chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>